You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Today is, um, as you can see, the, the second part of our kind of our vision. So I do two times a year where it's going to be more vision casting, if you will. The first time is in September on our anniversary. And the second time is this part of the year, right after January, the first Sunday in February. And we do this to kind of help continue to cast the vision on where we're going and the direction that we believe the Lord is leading. Now, to be clear, this isn't just like, hey, here's some ideas that I want to happen or the elders just want to happen. Let's just let's just cast a big picture for it, like a, kind of a corporate model of casting vision. But rather, what we're doing is we're assessing the church body. We're assessing what's going on. We're assessing the needs and we're assessing Scripture what does Scripture call us to do in this time? That's the sort of vision we're talking about here. A biblical vision. And so what we did back in September was we cast the vision for prepare to build. You may have seen that in the hallway on the poster as you come in where it says prepare to build. And that vision was cast out of 1 Corinthians chapters 1-4. through 4. And what we were seeing was that there was a lot of destruction within the church in general and even within Redeemer for some time in the last couple of years, and we needed to rebuild. So it was a building campaign, except we're not building a physical building, though we are making repairs as we can. But the church, the building, the body of Christ, building her back up and properly and carefully doing so. And so today is really the part two of that series. And so last time in September, we said, okay, so we need to build. This is what we know we need to do. And out of 1 Corinthians chapters 1-4, through 4, we came out with these biblical principles for building. Think of it like you have land, and on that land you have four fences that keep all the livestock in or keep people out, whatever, however you want to view it. But those four different fences are the biblical principles, and we are to guide, we are to live and move forward within those principles. And the principles, which are also out in the hallway, are first agreement that we agree first and foremost in the gospel. We're always saying what we disagree on, but what we need to do is what is it we agree on? We agree in Christ. The second principle is power. That we are trusting in and relying upon the power of Christ and Him crucified. Going to Him in prayer, not relying on our own strengths. The third principle is care. That we are carefully building Redeemer upon Christ, the perfect foundation. That we're not building her upon any other foundation. And the last is stewardship. That we are rightly stewarding the riches of God's grace for His glory and for the good of the church. Agreement, power, care, stewardship. Those are our guiding principles. And so if we kind of look back and recap, the last couple years have surfaced a lot about the direction of our culture and society and even the local church. Many within the church discovered for the first time their theological convictions were not ultimately withstanding the fire that was opposing them mainly coming from culture. And as a result, there was a lot of disagreement, heavily defended opinions, assuming the worst of one another, succumbing to fear, taking up a posture of defense rather than a posture of humility, oneness, unity, tons of accusations. And the result was a church that became more known about their disagreements than their agreements. More known for tearing one another down rather than building one another up. And the aftermath of that looked like a heap of ruins and regret. Redeemer is no exception to those events. And so it's time we rebuild. Now that we have been rightly prepared with the right guiding principles, it's time we actually do something. And that is what this message is going to be today. 
We will build within the boundaries of those guiding principles instilled by Scripture. And we will build in such a way that it will help restore the integrity of the church, her unity, and her honor within the community. We will build so that the city of Springfield, when it looks at Redeemer Church and even her partners across the city, that they see a beacon of hope and glory that is ultimately for all the nations. We will build in such a way that, when, that we can both engage and endure the oppositions of this present age and can carry on the mission of loving our God, loving our neighbor, and making disciples of all nations. We will not and cannot be deterred or distracted anymore. In the days ahead, the elders have decided in conjunction with these guiding principles and the imminent needs of Redeemer to focus on three building blocks for the next six to nine months. Three building blocks. So all of you kids with pencils and paper, if you want to draw three building blocks, okay, or weird monsters. So if you want to draw three building blocks or three weird monsters, here they are. Here's the primary blocks we want to focus on. And eventually we'll get something cool on the stage to display it. One, biblical values. Two, biblical training. And three, biblical deacons. And if you guys had made that slide, there we go. These are the three primary building blocks. Biblical values, biblical training, biblical deacons. And those are the passages we're going to be um, touching upon this morning. So this message this morning is not an exhaustive exposition of a specific passage, but Really, this is a topical sermon helping cast a vision, but we do believe that we are taking the Scripture in context here to help make the case for what it is we're doing. So first, biblical values. If you're able to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, please do so. Starting in verse 13. And I appreciate how Brandon Stiko started the trend of us standing for the reading of God's Word, so we're just going to keep going with it. So if you don't mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We won't do this three or four different times. We'll just do it this once. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You may be seated. We are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. That is our church's mission statement. And so now the question becomes, what are the behaviors and the culture of which we are to cultivate for this mission to be lived out? Right? We, we can say that disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. But the question is, what does that look like? What do we do for that to take place? And biblical values express and define the culture of Redeemer in such a way that it helps shape the how we do discipleship. Think of biblical values as wind that fills the sails of a boat. It fills the sails of mission. Biblical values give us sharp focus. They help us engage or even receive difficulties. And they help us do it in the power of Christ, one of our guiding principles. And they help us remain focused. They give clarity. 
They help us endure. And biblical values are derived not just from within on our own, but from Scripture. And they are both going to be what we currently express as a body and also what we want to be moving forward. The English definition of the word value is a person's principles or standards of behavior. One's judgment of what is important in life. Or, the church's, the Bible's, principles or standards of behavior. 1 Peter 3 illustrates that behavior pattern very well. And it speaks of it in the context of suffering. If you read through the book of 1 Peter to the elect exiles in the dispersion, Peter is writing to suffering Christians all over. All over the the known world at that time. And he's writing to them, understanding that he's addressing them amidst suffering. But he reminds them that there is value, there is worth, there is meaning to the suffering, and that their suffering is not in vain. And in fact, their Lord, Jesus, modeled that and exampled that suffering first. We live in a time where the American culture is actually having to count the cost perhaps for the first time. And she is also discovering that many of her leaders are not as concrete in biblical principles as she thought. And as a result, there's a terrible amount of panic, anger, frustration, suffering within the church in America. And should I say, she is being refined in this very time. And as a result, the American church, other than clutching to constitutional rights, is not sure what to do. But I think the Bible gives us direction. And I think that's what Peter calls us to do. That there is a better way of living during these tumultuous times. And we see that in verses 13 through 17. You notice again in verse 16 that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That word behavior means to conduct oneself with apparent focus upon overt daily behavior. To live, to conduct oneself, to behave, behavior, conduct. Peter says, respond to the evils of this world with good behavior in Christ. The opposite would be to respond to this world with bad behavior in the name of Christ. That would be taking the Lord's name in vain. Peter speaks of two behaviors. Gentleness and respect. He says to do behave that way with a good conscience. The conscience is your conscience. Knowing that what you're doing is acting and behaving like Jesus. Jesus is the standard and the director of your conscience, not the other way around. Peter expounds on that conscience some more if you were to go down to verse 21, when he compares our baptism in the Christian faith with the flooding waters in the time of Noah. If you remember when God flooded the earth, it destroyed everybody except those who were on the ark. It's a vivid illustration. When we were baptized, we were baptized into death and raised to life. We died to our old self, and we have risen to a new and better way in Jesus. So thus, our conscience is clear when we behave in respectful and gentle ways in the face of suffering, in the face of tyranny, because we have already undergone a violent death to sin, and now we are alive in Christ. And that has been symbolized through the waters of baptism. So Peter is telling us essentially, there's a better way to live, a better way to behave, something better to value in life, rather than behaving and valuing the things that ultimately lead to evil and condemnation. So here are the better biblical values or behaviors that we want to lead Redeemer in in the months to come. There's four of them. It's stewardship, rest, honor, and hospitality. Stewardship, rest, honor, 
and hospitality. If we think of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus that deals with our identity, we are worshipers, followers, servants, missionaries. That's how we define what it means to be a disciple. Okay, so what is the wind that moves us, that catches that sail of being a disciple of Jesus? And we believe right now it is stewardship. And that doesn't mean just stewarding your money in your bank account and give more to the church. What it means is managing something that is not your own. Meaning everything that you have, every relationship that you have, every job that you have, every whatever it is that you have is not yours. It is God's. And God is calling us to steward it for His glory and for the good of others. So therefore, we are to steward our worship. God has given us a new heart to worship. We are to steward our fellowship of Jesus. He has given us a spirit of power. He's given us courage and strength to follow Him, to die to self. We are to steward what it means to be a servant, to serve the Lord, to serve one another. We are to steward what it means to be on mission or a missionary, meaning we give all that we have for the sake of Christ's name being known among the nations. That's what it means to be a good steward. Rest. Rest in honor. Fit under the middle section. In life together. In life together paints the picture of what it means to be the church. We're not just a bunch of individuals who show up to a religious activity. We are the family of God. We are the church of the living God. And so as we live as the church of God with one another, we need to do so with rest. And I'm not talking about taking naps, though those are really good. And I'm not talking about being lazy. I'm talking about biblical rest. Rest is entering into Christ, into His Sabbath. And that is the place of which we enter constantly. And then it is the posture from which we work, live, and play. We rest to play, to work. We don't work to rest. Make sense? One is life-giving, the other one is exhausting and causes fatigue. But we operate, live, breathe from a position of rest, just like our Lord. We honor one another. This is going to be the biggest hurdle for our church. And a lot of this follows my own personality. I'm very slapstick, I'm very sarcastic, I'm very like jock locker room talk kind of guy. And so that, that's like, that's a love language. But the hard reality of that is that can be really putting down of others. That can really be intimidating. Like somebody comes in the hallway and they're like, ah, I don't want to be around Greg. Right? We don't want that. We want to regard our image-bearing neighbor with high respect and do it out of reverence for Christ. Meaning when I get up here, I don't put down the guys who preached in January. I say, thank you for giving your time. I say, thank you wives for giving up your husbands. I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm trying to give you an example here. It is going to be a hard thing to constantly build one another up and to say words and do actions that bring honor upon a person and not shame. And the last one, hospitality, making disciples. Hospitality in its basic form is welcoming the stranger. But not just welcoming the stranger, but one another as Christ has welcomed you. We need to be a people who are hospitable because it is an expression of the Gospel. That we meet the stranger and then that stranger is no longer a stranger we bring them to our dinner table. We go to them. We share life with them. We serve them as Christ has served us. Stewardship, rest, honor, hospitality. And so living with those values allows us to live in the example of Christ amidst a broken world. Those values are not values of the world right now, I assure you. What politician is honoring another politician on social media right now? Like, or who's honoring anybody at this point? And who's being hospitable? 
We're drawing lines in the sand. You stay over there, I stay over here. This is how the church turns the world upside down. This is how the world looks at the church and goes, I am in awe at what I'm seeing. This makes no sense. And as Stiko said a few weeks ago, this is a paradox. We are a living paradox. This will not be easy, but we have an example. Peter said in the second chapter, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. There is no excuse. Christ has led the way. We follow in His footsteps. And so Jesus rightly suffered while simultaneously honoring and submitting Himself to human authorities of His day. That's the bigger picture of what Peter's getting at. We see that modeled even in the final hours of Jesus' life as He was able to stand before Pontius Pilate who could not find any fault in Him. No dishonoring behaviors. No dishonoring actions that would cause Him to believe that He was acting in any way wickedly. And yet still, Pilate had Jesus scourged and handed over to be crucified. Jesus was wrongly accused, unjustly punished, but maintained course with His biblical values and behaviors all the way to His death. Never at one point as He was suffering unjustly did He shake His fist at anyone. We have to live in such a way that our behaviors are blameless before a dying world. Even if the world scourges us and sends us away to be crucified, may we be carried away with the same character that Christ exampled for us. And to the end, and perhaps with fading breath, we exhale, Father, forgive them. So are you ready to cast your sails, to set your sails, to catch the wind of biblical values and behaviors? Are you ready to live by values that lead you to stewarding all of your life for the sake of Christ and not selfish gain? It's not about you, never been about you, won't be about you. It's about Christ and His glory and His fame among the earth. Are you ready to give a defense of your faith from a posture of rest instead of fearful insecurities or anxieties? Are you ready to give honor to all in this church, to all in our community, and even image-bearing tyrants to be hospitable to all, including those you would deem your greatest enemy or threat? These are the biblical values we wish to uphold and cultivate and redeemer, and we invite you to join us in this reformation. And as we establish these values, we will also be laboring in biblical training, the second building block or second monster. And this comes from uh, actually a couple passages: Second Timothy three, and then also Titus two, but. Let me turn to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If 2020 was a refiner's fire, then what we have discovered in the purification of the church or the purification process is that we have a lack of both biblical and cultural literacy. That is knowing how to read, understand, and apply the Bible both personally and how we engage culture from a biblical worldview. This responsibility rests heavily not on your shoulders, but on the shoulders of the elders to make sure that the body is properly equipped in understanding the Bible, 
theological, doctrinal issues, as well as how to apply that to cultural matters. We haven't done a super good job at this, but we look forward to increasing in our effectiveness in it. And to this day, the questions remain, how do I live in these times? What does God have to say about these things? And so it's our objective to provide both a biblical and cultural teaching and even resources that help grow in God's Word in providing all of us with confidence needed to face today's world. And please understand, we are going to put more emphasis on biblical literacy than anything. Living out biblical values is something that doesn't come without some form of instruction or training. The Bible speaks about stewardship. It speaks about rest, about honor, about hospitality. And so what we need is clear biblical definitions to these things so that it informs our training and then our action. And this comes through proper godly training in the Scriptures. And so what is training? Training is to provide instruction and training with the implication of skill in some area of practical knowledge. So for example, if hospitality is welcoming the stranger and one another as Christ has welcomed you, then training provides the skill of that knowledge. How do we need to greet one another? Paul tells us with a holy kiss. It's up to you if you want to disobey that scripture or not, okay? But here's what it looks like to practically open your home, to open your dinner table, to have conversation. That's another one. Here's how you just have a conversation. It's the practical outworking of those things. And so we want to focus our training with biblical literacy that leads to both righteous living and a biblically informed response to culture. We're going to see that from the pulpit. And I'll get into that in a little bit. We're going to be hitting on some of these key issues in the weeks and months to come. We have classes. Right now there's a doctrine class that is going on for this very purpose. Allow life groups to be the avenue, the arena that you begin to apply these sorts of values towards one another. Come to reflections or advance. Those ministries specifically are working through books of the Bible verse by verse digging in, wrestling through, talking about things, and then also figuring out how do we apply this. And then also prayer night. We'll get into this in a moment. But this prayer night, this is a night that we really press into the power of Christ. We seek Him. We seek His understanding. If we try to do this training, if we try to live out these values in our own power, in our own might, and absent of prayer, then you can just forget it the walls will come tumbling down. But we need to press into prayer and make it priority. And so I want to show you two ways from Scripture and how we are to train. One is training that is grounded in Scripture, as we just read in verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's important to note that our training cannot be and is not grounded in methods or strategies implemented by the world or other successful churches. And it's not that we can't learn from those things or apply some of them, but it doesn't matter if we are not first rightly grounded in Scripture. That's what matters. Because everything in life must be pressed through the lens of Scripture. So Scripture here, in this context, refers to both the Old and the New Testaments. Paul tells us these things about Scripture. That it is breathed out by God. That means these are God's words. The words of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's words, which means that they are right And they are true. But also they are profitable. Profitable meaning you have an ROI. You have a return of investment here when you buy into God's Word. And it's profitable for teaching. 
teaching the person and the work of Christ. It's profitable for reproof or correction. Those times when you have to have really hard conversations, when you have to rebuke someone, have them turn away from their evil ways. We often forget about that in Scripture, that that's an actual good thing. It's sanctifying. It's good for both the one giving it and the one receiving, though it may be painful. It is also profitable for training in righteousness. To know how to practically live righteous, holy lives. He's not saying how to become righteous. No, we are righteous because of what Christ has done. The training is how to live out the righteousness that you already have in Jesus. And so then, the return of investment is that every man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's the aim. By grounding us in Scripture, teaching us how to read the Bible, to know the Bible, to apply the Bible, we help equip you for every good work. But then secondly, we are to train to live like Jesus lived in the present age. To train to live like Jesus lived in the present age. This one comes out of Titus in chapter 2, 11 and 14. Which says, or 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself, up, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me read 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Be ready for every good work. Jesus is the grace of God that has appeared. He's the glory of God that has appeared. He is the love of God that has appeared. He is the Word of God that has appeared. He is the grace of God that has appeared. The grace of God manifested. Grace in its most simplest of definition, receiving something you don't deserve. We don't deserve Christ. We don't deserve His righteousness. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve any of those things. But what did He do? He came bringing salvation. Saving us from sin. Saving us from the wrath of God. From eternal death. From eternal hell. Saving us to eternal life to life in Christ, to righteousness found in Christ alone. And He's saving us from the evil ways of this world of which we once followed and unto a better and holy way of living. And so it is Jesus who is training us. God's Word is living and active. This Word is actively training us. Jesus is still training us. And training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. These things are against God. They're against His Word. They follow after the passions and the values of the world, but we are not that way. And so in the months to come, what we plan to do in helping train in dealing with the issues of the present age is to ask Jesus to help train us in ways of living and asking Scripture questions like, what is, why is rightly understanding marriage and parenting so important in these times? What, is, what in our culture or society is constantly disrupting the family unit? And why does that matter? What does the Bible say about gender and roles? And 
what should we be doing in response to these things as Christians? What does the Bible say about how God uses governments? And what does the Bible say how Christians are to respond to governing authorities? That just made everyone really uncomfortable. Where does the church stand in a society with prevailing ideologies, Christian nationalism and Christian Marxism? Where are we? What does the Bible say about the sanctity of life? Why is aborting children such a temptation to our culture? What does God God expect the church to do about it? These are some of the questions that we're going to wrestle with in Scripture, seeking the Lord, asking Jesus to help train us in His righteousness and how to deal with these things. Because these are real issues that are happening among our body. And so He trains us to live in the present age. And He trains us to live self-controlled lives, godly lives, enduring lives, waiting for Jesus, our blessed hope, for His appearance. He trains us to live purified lives with good works. This is what Jesus is going to do. And we hope that He does and accomplishes those things as we work through the issues of our present age. And to renounce the things of this world is not easy. He trains us in the character and the behaviors and the values of godliness so we can endure and engage the present age, Jesus has an objective in this. That we be ready for every good work. Note this. We we cannot possibly tell, tell you every nuanced detail of how you are to live your life in Christ. We can train and inform you in righteousness and the things of the present age, but we cannot possibly cover every single nuance. And further, there is no one-size-fits-all answer to the issues of the day. We have to consider Scripture. We have to consider the context of our day. And we have to consider how we can best be faithful to Him and trust that He will ultimately work out the details that sometimes we lose sleep over. Let me give you an example. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor, theologian, during the time of World War II, lived in Germany. He had the opportunity to come over here to the States and stay over here in the States and teach, but he chose to go back home and live under the Third Reich and willingly be persecuted in order to help serve the church and do what he could to help save the persecuted Jewish race. And at some point in his life, in ministry as the war was settling in or coming close, he was able to justify plotting against and conspiring to murder Hitler. He was considered a spy. His reasons, we can leave that for another time, but many of us in this room could find agreement with him, though some have not. But if we take that one-size-fits-all approach and look at the genocide committed in the United States with the abortion of millions of babies, then would it be justifiable to plot and conspire to murder those in power who are committing such atrocities? Would the Bible support that decision? Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Malachi. These are difficult questions. This is why it cannot be a one-size-fits-all This is why we have to be very careful in understanding the Scripture, very careful in how in the steps we take in doing these things. And this is why the church at large cannot dictate every single step and move you take or make as an individual or a family and how you approach these things. It's our job as a church to teach you to know the Scripture to teach you to think, to have a mind, to teach you to live in the example of Christ. You need to open your Bible and not just leave it to me or the teachers 
on Sunday morning. You have to open the Bible. You have to read. You have to be able to think. You need to be able to understand from Scripture what it is you're doing. Bonhoeffer did that. And understand also, you are not going to get it right every time. I don't get it right every time. You won't get it right every time. But to remember that God is after your heart, an obedient heart, and He's not asking you to fix all the problems of the world. Now I want you to understand, I'm not saying we don't address problems. We don't address issues. We need to. But sometimes we get so caught up in trying to think that we have the power and the ability to change and affect every single thing that we actually busy our minds so much with things outside the Scripture that we lose sight of the simple command to make disciples. To worship Him. To honor Him. He doesn't want us unprepared, but prepared and ready to live. He is so behind this training that He exampled it in His life. Jesus is the schoolmaster and we are the students. Diligently studying His life, His words, His commands, His example, and then putting them to work. Being biblically trained in the practical outworking of our faith will inevitably lead us to a healthier posture towards one another and toward the world around us. As we train, it is necessary we structure ourselves with leadership that helps us move to those ends. So we must move forward in establishing the last building block, biblical deacons. Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be thinking, man, that's a really impactful passage of Scripture. It has a lot of information. That's really helpful. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Paul could have said when he wrote this letter and introduced the letter, you know, I, Paul, to the church at Philippi, and just left it at that. But he addresses the church in its equal yet unique distinctions. Saints, overseers, deacons. Saints, overseers, and deacons. All of them are equally sinners. All of them equally saved by Christ. All of them have unique, distinct roles, however. This means that whatever Paul is about to say in the rest of the book of Philippians is for all the church. Not just the top leaders, but for all the church, no matter the category. And that all distinct parts have a role to play in the house of God. So what are some of the things that Paul addresses to these saints, these overseers, these deacons? If you don't know, overseers are elders or pastors. He says in Verse 6 of chapter 1, that the work of Christ will come to completion in Philippi. It will be done through these saints, these overseers, these deacons. Verse 19, to pray for the church to endure. This is a full team participation of prayer. Saints, overseers, and deacons. To live in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Jesus. To stand firm in one spirit, one mind in Christ. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To do all things without grumbling or complaining. To hold fast to the word of life. To receive honor and rejoice, or to receive honor and rejoice with those sent out to do the work as church planters and missionaries. To rejoice in the Lord. To look out for dogs, for evildoers. To press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To imitate Paul. To stand firm in the Lord. And to practice all these things. I'm all the way up to the fourth chapter. 
and the God of peace will be with you. The letter was addressed to saints, overseers, and deacons. And within this letter, there's a host of imperatives or commands to the entire church. None of these are exclusive for deacons, overseers, saints. All of them are responsible for the contents of this letter. But what matters and what I want you to see is how these things practically work themselves out in the context of the local church. In other words, in order for us to be a church that looks like what Paul is, has laid out in this letter and in others, it takes all of us, regardless of our position in the church. This is a team effort. And we need to make sure that we, all, or that we have all the positions and players lined out. One of the greatest revelations to us in the last couple years was our inability to keep up with the flood of controversy, theological dilemmas, and cultural influences. The elders were quickly distracted from the primary tasks of word, prayer, equipping, in order to try to just put out as many fires as possible. It was daunting. It caused fatigue, and that residual attention came upon the church body, and Many were just trying to navigate life and figure out what's going on and were looking for the leaders to set the example. The elders realized there's a missing player. And those players are biblically qualified and defined deacons. It's not as though that we're lacking servants in the body or ministry leaders. What we are lacking is something a bit more focused and rich in purpose. Deacons are not just task-oriented, get-things-done servants in the church. They are leaders who are driven to help the church function as it ought, under the direct guidance of the elders. The deacons free the elders from serving tables, as we see in Acts, while simultaneously pulling unity among the body, helping manage church resources, training and deploying the saints to carry out the much-needed burden of the church that would otherwise keep the elders from primarily ministering in word and prayer and equipping. As you can see, we have operated as a church with saints, with overseers, and what I'll call quasi-deacons known as ministry leaders. But let me say this about our ministry leaders. They have done all and even more that has been asked of them. And they've done an exceptional job. Every single one of them. They are not the issue. The problem has been raising up leadership finally focused in the biblical role of a deacon and not just some structure that we conjured up that will help just get things done. We've just kind of been operating pragmatically. How do we get this done? Well, here, let's figure out we can build up this kind of structure. But God has laid a structure in Scripture. And so by structuring the church the way God intended, it gives, it gives more weight and more value along with a healthy zeal to do whatever it takes to keep the body focused and keeping in obedience to the Scriptures. If we look at one way this practically worked out even in Paul's life, in the book of Philippians, if Paul being an apostle, being the, one of the first overseers, if you will, you see that he has under him Timothy, Epaphroditus, Iodia, Syntyche, Clement. These helped him. They were sent by Paul on his behalf to check on the church. They served alongside Paul in the Gospel. They were sent as messengers to minister to Paul's needs. They served alongside Paul, even risking their own lives for the sake of the Gospel. So these aren't just merely task-doers. These are men and women who labored in the work of the Gospel. Paul had deacons, if you will. And they weren't fixing just leaky toilets and filling out spreadsheets for the church budget but for the necessary work needed so that sound doctrine and service could be rendered to the local church. Paul couldn't have written the letters that he had written had he not 
had deacon help. These deacons, and I'm calling them deacons, Scripture isn't calling them that, but these deacons knew sound theology. They knew how to live it out. But furthermore, they knew they were called to step in as deacons who would help aid Paul in the ongoing work of spreading the Gospel and planting churches. He needed this so he could remain focused on the task at hand. And so we are looking to establish deacons that will help rally the troops to get the work done on this facility, who will aid in the work of life groups and equipping, and will aid in the work of Redeemer kids and youth. We will be looking for deacons who can help lead our people to focus outwardly on ministering to the poor, on the orphan, the widow. We want deacons to help serve the needs of care in our church body, to be the conduit for benevolence and communication to the elders so that we know who to pray for when they are sick. We need to establish this structure so that as we practice all these things, we know the God of peace is with us. March 6, mark that on your calendar, is our next family meeting. And at that time, the elders will have finished the, the full theology and process, everything you need to know about deacons, and we are going to present it to the church family at that time, open it even for discussion, and begin to lay out what does it look like to install deacons this year. And so we want to invite you to be a part of that family meeting. Make it a priority. And so just in conclusion here, I hope it's been clear what our intentions are moving forward. We intend to rightly build the church up as the Lord has called us to do, and we want to do that while being rightly guided by biblical principles. That we agree in the Gospel. And that we agree that these things are good. That we trust in the power of Christ in prayer as we move forward in these things. That we carefully build Redeemer upon Christ and not be foolish or impulsive in our building. And that we steward the riches of God's grace and resources to make sure that these things are complete. So we ask that you not only observe our work, but that you join in the life of this church. Give your life. Give your all to the work that we are doing. All of our ministries are going to be pressed through this frame of building. And we have done all that we can to make sure what we're doing is the right biblical thing to do. So we invite you to come and labor with us. You the saints, we invite you to help the overseers and the soon-to-be deacons to strive to build Redeemer up in our biblical values, in our biblical training, and biblical deacons.